Where we left off in the last episode, we talked about what had become a full-blown addiction, treatment, and then falling back into your old ways. At one point in your life, you were a rising, talented basketball star. But where we are in your story, you're essentially homeless here in Fort Worth. Tell us about that. So I, I got back to Texas, and uh, it took me a few days to get to get situated, which means it took me a few days to, to get back to my normal self. And um, there were some things going on with my family that nobody had had shared with me really because I just wasn't part of the family at this point. I was just uh, estranged from it. So my, my mom and my father uh, were getting ready to move to San Antonio and they were leaving the house to my sister. This was a really big problem and left a really big gap in my security blanket. Basically there was no way that I was going to San Antonio and there was no way on earth that my sister was going to let me stay with her. So, uh, as the time I, I treated this situation, like it wasn't really going to happen. So I just didn't do much in preparation. I just stayed in the house as long as I could until finally, um, my sister was like, Hey, you got one day left and then you can't be there. If I get there and you're there, I'm going to call, I'll call the cops, you know, just don't make this tough on us. I'm still medicated on Suboxone. I'm still, there's still gaps in it. So I'm taking pills. I had been treated for methadone. I was, uh, this was a hellish thing deal too. I, uh, I didn't have the money for Suboxone and neither did my family. So instead of taking Suboxone, I went to the public methadone clinic. And so I, my days for quite some time started at four in the morning where I would wake up and have my mother drive me to the methadone clinic so that I could get uh, a dose of methadone so that I wouldn't be sick. That was a, that was a, that was a really tough time. But, but, but really what was happening was the light at the end of the tunnel was starting to, 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 to burn out because they were getting ready to leave and I couldn't go with them and I couldn't stay. So I was going to be homeless. So I ended up, I ended up being homeless. My parents ended up footing a cheap motel bill for me for a little while. Now, at this point, I had no, I had no money. I had no money and I had the clothes on my back and that was it. And the money for the hotel room, that was all handled by my sister and my mother. And so this was the beginning of me going through the final stages of my opiate addiction. I stayed in a hotel for about five weeks with no Suboxone, no methadone and no opiates. And really was a really trying time for me. Uh, I did everything I could. Uh, I bought cheap beer, cigarettes, uh, I, I was taking tons of sleeping medication, um, and it went on for days and then it went on for weeks. And I was just like, there was a point where I just, I didn't know if this was ever going to end. It was a miserable time for me. You know, it's important to note that like at this, at this point, like my, my, my wherewithal or any of my, any, anything that like everything was out the window. I was sleeping in 
a bed that I couldn't get out. I, I was in a bed that I couldn't get out of most days. So I had an ashtray and a little piece of cardboard to set my steel reserve 211 on my thing. And there was spilt beer and the mattress was wet and soggy with ash, ashes and cigarette holes in the mattress for the, the motel. And and I was sleeping in this sort of environment every day because I was so sick that I couldn't even leave the room. Uh, aching knees and man, I just went through it. Um, and then one day I, uh, I woke up and, you know, much like the same day before I had brushed off the, the wet and sticky ashes off me and smacked the beer can away from me and picked the ashtray back up and, uh, something was different. I, I, I couldn't really put my finger on it, but something was much different. So I got to the edge of the bed and I thought to myself, man, what's going on? And, uh, I like in an instant, like I knew, but then I was scared. I, I wasn't achy. I wasn't hurting. I was, it was this really weird, surreal moment. And, uh, I was scared to move. Cause sometimes when you're going through withdrawal, you know, you can like strike a pose or get into a position and your aches will go away for a quick second. But I thought this was one of those moments. So I just stood on the side of the bed. I just sat there and I was thinking to myself, dude, if you move, you're going to start hurting. So I'm looking around and like, man, there's trash everywhere. This place is a disaster. But for some reason, it just looked a little dirtier to me that day. And I was like, what the what is going on? So I'm like, all right, I'm going to get up. And I'm like, if I hurt, then I'm just going to go get a beer and do wash, rinse, repeat, get, do it all over again. And I stood up and I took a step and I didn't ache. I made it to the front door. This was a victory, you know, like this was a major victory for me. And, uh, I'll never forget. I opened the door and, uh, it was like all the colors had came back. They were so true. Like it was so sharp. The clouds, I, I could like, this is going to sound weird, but I could hear the cars moving. And, and, and I don't know if that, if you can imagine just walking through life, not hearing, like, you know, nothing is, is standing out to you. It's just like a blur. But now I could hear every intricacy of the outside. I could hear the cars moving. I could hear the birds. I could see and hear the wind on my ears, something I hadn't heard in a long time. And I had overcome the physical withdrawing of the opiates for the first time in, I want to say, like seven years. And... um there was another half of the addiction that I didn't know I'd have to face, but that was a, that was a, a surreal, bittersweet moment in my life. After I realized that I had shaken the opiates, I knew it was a gift. I knew this was a priceless gift. Um, and to this day, I have never touched another opiate for fear of what it would do to me. Um, there's been many a times where even I've gone to the hospital, right, for a minor injury or, or, or something happens and they offer me, like I, I passed a kidney stone and, and they, they had to minimally 
do me with the pain medicine. And I, I, you know, I'm upfront all the time now. Hey, look, I had an issue because it's such a slippery slope. But yeah, after that day, I, uh, I've never touched another pain pill. Were you still in contact with your family? When I was at the hotel, I had minimal contact with my family. My, my mom and, and, and Zach really, you know, looking back, they needed a break. And so I talked to my mother every once in a while. Zachary was, from this point moving forward, Zachary was always hesitant uh, with communicating. He was cordial, but there wasn't much, there wasn't much authenticity there. I feel like maybe I had just worn him out. But uh, my sister, um, she was the link in the family that connected us. And when I was there, she would, you know, stop by every few days and bring me donuts and ask me how I was doing. Did you get clean? I didn't. I stayed clean. I, I stayed clean for about two days. And then this really dark, deep, depressive state came over me. And learning more about opiate addiction, that's something that happens. When you're on opiates, I, I talked earlier on uh, one of the episodes about how it gives you that sense of belonging and feeling and, and, and uh, like everything's okay. And without them, the weight of the world, the scale is now correct, right? So I felt this immense darkness and pressure from all of my past mistakes and all of my transgressions, and I couldn't shake it. I, I wasn't hurting, right? Physically, I was okay, but mentally, I was, I was not well. And so I got on Facebook and uh, looked for the uh, usual suspects and striked a few conversations and uh, ran into this dude and this girl who were, you know, just as loose as I was. And uh, before you know it, I was living in a trailer park. I left the hotel and moved into a trailer park with these two and methamphetamine, methamphetamine, excuse me, became the sole center of my existence. You know, I, there's this really crazy world that uh, methamphetamine encapsulates. And this trailer park was my entryway really into that. Uh, I didn't have any friends. I didn't have anybody that I, that I talked to on a daily basis. So these two new people that I had met, this guy and this girl, became like my connection to any, any, any part of any social interaction. I went to the trailer park and there were people in and out of this trailer park, but none of them were really like, they were all like low. We were all just users. And then, and, and then recognizing that, you know, I was like, dang, you know, I, I can make this work for me. How did you support your drug habit? What do you turn to? So one day, one of the uh, one of the people came over and, and and they were you know dropping something off, and it just so happened to be a chick. And I I noticed that like you know it uh, I saw an opening, and so I took I took I took a shot at it and and uh, weaseled my way into you know petty selling, petty drug selling. There was nothing in my life but methamphetamine. It became a ritual. So, 
you know, when you start selling drugs, you're just like, you start selling drugs, you, you get this weird, undescribable feeling about how people need you. You're almost like a God, right? And here I am in this little trailer park. I don't come from trailer park backgrounds and there's nothing wrong with that, but there was this, this weird dynamic that was cooking. And it was like, here I am. I've had all of these weird, these crazy life experiences, boom, boom, boom. And then I'm around these people here and like, I'm just running the show. Right. Like I'm, 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 I'm selling, I'm, I'm selling drugs to make sure I have drugs. I don't have to work hard to sell the drugs the, because the people that I live with are using the drugs. There's just, it's just, it just created a perfect storm. It became the centerpiece of my life. No, I didn't do anything. Never would never do anything unless I was high. And that, that was every day you've described that at this juncture in your life meth had become a religion to you methamphetamine did become a religion to me it became a god um i it just took this nasty hold on me where all the grime and the grit and the filth that you see in life you know porn and and all kind of debauchery. It was just like the murkiness of all the levels of life became attractive and appealing to me. And it, it never stopped. It was, it was just like, no matter what I was doing, where I found myself, I would wake up with roaches on me next to women that I didn't even know. And uh, it was like, as long as there was dope there, it didn't matter what I woke up with on me who was around me, how much trash was in the house, how many needles were on the counter. It was like everything was okay. And, and you know, you'd wake up with a smile on your face and you would, I would, uh, reach in my pocket and grab that pipe. And, you know, I remember just, I would grab that pipe and look at it and smile, even talk to it sometimes. It's the craziest thing that I've ever, like looking back, it really was a God to me. I mean, there were rituals to getting high. There were, uh, procedures and steps, you know, that I would go through and that I would do to make, make the setting all right to get high. Um, but it, it just really, it made me inf infatuated with all of the grimy and the, and the, and the gritty stuff about life that just the deep, dark places where, where you hear stories and you're like, Oh, that's, that's crazy. Those were the places I lived in and that I reveled in. Ultimately your addiction leads you to have further interaction with law enforcement. Although they're minor, it ended up resulting in a three year deferred adjudication sentence, which is essentially probation without a conviction, but you're on what a lot of people call on paper. So you're reporting to someone and you're supposed to follow some rules that the court sets out for you. Tell us a little bit about that time. Initially, what I went to jail for was an under gram charge. I, um, I was out of my mind. I, I was high. I've been up for a few days and I uh, ended up going to the uh, mall and uh, with money in my pocket, decided to take my shoes off and put the new shoes on and walk out of the store. So I, I caught a, a theft charge and a... Uh, uh, and uh, under a gram because I had some methane, I had some dope on me. And so 
if anything, it, it fueled me once they let me out. It, my, my appetite for destruction only got bigger. I found out ways to beat the, all the, all the probation things. I was just skating by it, um, coming up with excuses, doing all kinds of stuff. Um, at this time, you know, obviously I'm, uh, I got to sell more drugs to keep up with a bigger appetite. So while I'm on probation, I'm just, I'm just picking up the pace and I'm just devouring everything in my way. Um, I'm homeless, but maybe, you know, I've got enough dope on me to, to, to sit on somebody's couch that I'm selling dope to. So man, I'm bouncing around house to house, living with strangers, um, living in strange environments, just lots of strange days and crazy nights. On April 8th, 2015, your luck finally runs out and you're arrested. Tell me about that. And what was going through your mind when you were arrested? The, the week, the week or two before I had, uh, got revoked on probation was a real stressful time for me. Not because I, uh, knew I was going to jail, but because I knew that I wasn't going to be able to get high and that I was going to be missing out on what was going on in the streets, you know, the, the normal day to day stuff that just kept me going. Um, so I get arrested because, um, I get pulled over with, and there was some dope in the car and, uh, I'm on probation. So they take me to probation or they take me to jail and uh, I get bailed out and I skip my court date because I can beat this charge. All I got to do is get a little more dope to get my lawyer. And then once I get a lawyer, I'll be able to postpone it, postpone it, and we'll be able to fight it because I'm not the only one in the car. It's not, you know, like I come up with all of these reasons and all of these things I've heard from other people telling me what to do. So that's what I do. I don't go to court. I score some more dope and, uh, instead of selling it, I just start smoking it. Right. So I'm smoking dope and I'm, I'm, I'm running from the law. And, uh, eventually they come to a house where they know I'm at and, uh, they surround the house and they come out and get me. And, uh, when they got me, I was, I was sort of relieved. I wasn't sort of, I was really relieved because I knew things needed to change. Like here, here's one of those moments again, right? I'm doing all this and I'm having fun. But when I deny a call from my sister on my cell phone or my mother, my heart sinks and I'm hurt. And I know that what I'm doing isn't right. And so I get arrested and I'm in the back of this cop car and we're flying down the freeway and I'm looking out the window and I'm like thinking to myself, man, it's all over. Like, this is probably what I need. Right. And, uh, so I, I get to County and, and, uh, I'm in a cell for a few weeks and my sister says she's working on getting me out and I'm, I'm really hopeful. I'm sober at this point. And then, and then it's the weekend. I talked to my sister on Friday. She says, yeah, we're going to get you out. You don't have a bail right now, but we're going to get you out. Uh, and Sunday around 1.30 in the morning, they come and they tell me, hey, uh, 
roll it up. And everybody in the everybody in the cell is like, damn, you're lucky, man. You're going home, dude. Uh, and something's not right to me because nothing moves on the weekends. And the guard can't tell me where I'm going. The guard just says, it's time for you to go. So I'm a little worried, but I'm still like, I'm, I'm starting to think at this point, okay, now I can get out and go get high. I can, you know, like, so I'm getting excited and they line us up and they take us down to where, you know, I made the whole roundabout. I did everything. And, uh, I had my street clothes on the clothes that I got arrested in and I'm sitting in the last cell to wait to go home. That's where I'm going. I, evidently that's where I'm going. And I'll never forget, I'm sitting on the cold concrete ground and everybody's talking about what they're going to do and how they're going to change or if they're going to go out and do the same thing. And the majority of them were saying the same thing I was thinking, right? Yeah, I'm going to go out and get high again. Um, and I hear this really menacing sound and it's just sounds like a, a ton of chains. Just sounds like there's a ton of chains being dropped in the hallway. And finally that noise makes it around the corner and is now staring me in the face. And it's this big man holding a bunch of long chains and he's got a paper in front of him. And I remember looking at him and I'm like, ooh, you know, like whoever that is, they're in trouble. And uh, he's staring at me and I can't figure out for the life of me why he's staring at me. And so I'm, my back's to the wall, but eventually I turn around to see who he's staring at. And uh, he looks at me and he says, he says, he calls my name. And I go, yeah. And he goes, come here. And he, he turns a piece of paper over and he shows me and he says, the United States of America has a warrant out for your arrest. And I, I froze. I, I didn't really even know, you know, like I, what? Me? I don't have a dollar to my pocket. I don't have a dollar to my name. I don't have a bank account. I don't have a house. I don't have a car. I got a pair of shoes, a pair of cut off Dickies. You know, I'm, thug I'm thugging it. I'm like really at the bottom rung of life. And so I was, man, this has got to be a mistake. And he's like, we, you can talk about that later, you know, whatever you, but you need to come with me. And so they put me in these chains and, and, uh, they tell me that I'm going to, fed uh, that, that I'm going to federal prison which is heavy, had a warrant out for my arrest. And I'm thinking like, at this point, I'm really thinking that like somehow somebody used my social security number or somebody's, somebody signed my name somewhere, right? Cause that's really, cause I wasn't, I wasn't selling enough dope or, dude, there was just a lot more going on than me. And I was like, man, this has gotta be cleared up. Like there's, you know, this has gotta be a mistake. So. Part of me was like, damn, I got to go through another two days of waiting. But then there was another part of me was like, Jesus Christ, what does this mean? And then like all the people that I was in the cell with, they knew like they knew somebody who knew me or we had gotten to know each other through like general conversation while I was there. And all of those guys in the cell were like there for like two times the amount of dope found or like they were just telling their stories and they they. I paled in comparison to them. And when they were getting released, they all had to go through the federal holding cell, like walk by it. And they were all like looking at me and they were like, and I was like, dude, I don't know. I have no idea. And they were all just like, 
like here I am. And it was just such a shock to me. It was this weird contrast of like, how, how could it, how could this happen to me? And it happened. Did you know you'd been under federal investigation? I had no idea that I was under federal investigation. I had the thought never crossed my mind. I mean, to me, while I was selling drugs, the entire time in my mind, I was just a user. I was never anybody who was harming anybody or taking advantage of anybody, right? The people that are buying drugs come to me because they want to buy drugs. They just want to smoke too. They're not selling drugs. I'm just, I just use, I just use a lot. And I just smoke with the people that I help out. That's really, that's an honest, like zero deflection truth about where I was at in my head at the time I got arrested. I never thought for one second that I was anything more than a user. You and I meet while you're in federal custody. What was that meeting like? What do you recall about it? I remember hearing about you before I actually met you. You know, and this is one of those other moments where like, where for some lining of the stars, there's a foreshadowing going on of hope and, and, and resurrection or, or like rebirth of who I really am. Right. I remember, I remember when I met you and you just had briefly introduced yourself to me, but it was along a a panel of people and uh, they were meeting their lawyers at the same time. And there was this guy in the cell that I just couldn't stand. Like everything he said irked me. And the one thing he ever said to me that, I, that I'll never forget was, hey man, you got a good lawyer. And I was like, how do you know? And he was like, dude, I seen him in the, I seen him. Or he said something like he knew somebody had, 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 had previous experience with you or something like that. And I, at first I was just like, okay, whatever. But I remember that moment real, really clearly. And it was the only thing that guy ever said that I, that I gravitated to and hung on to. And it proved to be true. Ultimately, you pled guilty to a federal drug conspiracy charge. Why'd you decide to plead guilty? You hear horror stories in there about people who go against the federal government. And, you know, before you get sentenced and before all of this stuff happens, you have a time and, 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 and moments to think about what really is going on in your life. And, and it's unfortunately it took this much for me, but there was no more beating the system for me. There was no more plausible deniability or, uh, no, you've got me mistaken or, or it just, it was time for it to all end. And I needed to be honest with what was going on in my life. And, 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 and I wanted to get better. So part of that's, that was the beginning of me getting better was I just needed to be for the first time in my life, I had to be accountable for something. And I made a decision to be accountable. On November 9th, 2015, you were sentenced by a federal judge. What were your thoughts leading up to that sentencing date? You know, like, uh, there was a lot of anticipation, um, you know, it, when you're in the holding cell and you're with a bunch of individuals who are going through the same 
situation that you're going with. You, you, you try to be there for them no matter what the case is. There's sort of like a, a brotherly thing that happens amongst, amongst men in, the, in there. And so uh, there was like this, there was a lot of encouragement and there was a lot of like be strong, bro, and do all that. And that was all cool. And it made, it made me feel comfortable. But the morning I remember waking up and it was almost like I was on the horizon of a black hole. I just, not that anybody's ever been there, but everything was slow and everything was drawn out. And it seemed like everybody's voice was like, like I, I knew what was happening and I, I just couldn't catch up to the moment. Does that make sense? I, I, I couldn't catch up to it and, and, and digest it in its whole, like there were little bits and pieces. And like, I remember getting in the van and man, my heart was going a hundred miles an hour. And, um, I remember sitting in the back of the van and looking up in the front of the van and the two guys driving the van didn't have a care in the world. And I was in the back, like fighting for my life. And, uh, man, I, it was just a really, really, really out of, it was like an out of body experience. You know, you know, something so big and so monumental is getting ready to happen in, in your life and you can't control it. And for the, for the last four or five years, anything in my life I controlled. If I wanted something, I got it brought to me. If, if I needed something, it was there. Right. And so now I'm completely helpless and, and there's nothing I can do to drive the situation to out of my hands. And, um, <clears throat> it was, it was, uh, it was tough. It was stressful. What was your sentence? I got 120 months. What was your reaction when you heard that sentence handed down? I was happy. I was because there was a lot of like, there was way more horror stories behind the numbers that people were talking about. And, and, and people were, there's a bunch of in-house lawyers who will tell you what you're going to get and what, what you're looking at. So it's hard not to pay attention to that. Right. Um, but ultimately when I heard my sentence, the one thing I thought to myself was it was doable. And, uh, and that made all the difference for me. I, th I, I think when I, when I heard him give me that time, I just remember saying, okay, you can do this. And, and then I, I just had this really big, really big moment of gratitude for you. And cause we went down through there, we had some, we had some talks and, and, and we, uh, we had some moments and we were just unsure. We didn't know. Right. And all I ever really wanted you to do was tell me something so that I could get a grip on it and that I could start to take it apart and rearrange it the way I needed to. And the best thing you could do was tell me that you didn't know, but that you were hopeful. So when I was given it, I was, I guess I was just grateful knowing that, that there was still something out there for me. And I, I thank you for that. Um, yeah, it was doable. Chris, although we're ending our episode here, your story is one of redemption as someone who's been to federal prison and made the most of it and turned your life around. I always like to end our episodes with something you learned while you were in federal prison. Tell the audience something that they can take with them that you learned during your time in custody. Find out what your goals are and then find out what's stopping you from achieving your goal, right? What are you scared of? Because ultimately that's what stops us from doing what we need to do or becoming the individual that we know we can be or that others around us see in us. It's that fear. 
So set your goals and then find out what is stopping you from creating or, or obtaining that goal and face it. Determine your circumstances, right? You be the deciding factor on what's going to allow you to stop or go forward in your life. So face your fears and find your, find your goals and face your fears. Tune in for the next episode as we continue this journey with Chris.